0: Good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the elders here. I, for one, was greatly encouraged by our celebration of Advent the last several weeks and the rhythms of remembrance we were able to walk in as we tuned our hearts to long for Jesus, the God who came and the God who will come. This morning, we jump back into 1 Peter, the letter written by Peter, that effectively and consistently reminds us that we are waiting for Jesus. And until the day of visitation comes, we remain as those in exile in this world because our identity is as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you've been listening along It's obvious that that identity can put us in a place of exile here and now because in the most basic sense, we belong somewhere else. We have already seen how that tension can be in place, but also how our identity informs how we live in the midst of that tension. Sometimes our relationship with Christ creates difficulty in our relationships in the world. We have seen how it affects the way we interact with government. We have seen how it affects our work relationship or even master-slave, master-servant relationships. And further still, sometimes our identity in Christ, our connection to Jesus creates tension in our closest relationships. The third environment that Peter addresses in which you are a witness for Christ, that third relationship is marriage. The closest human relationship we can have on this earth is one that can find itself in tension if a spouse loves and follows Jesus and the other one wants nothing to do with Him. But as Peter will explain, our exile with Christ extends to even marriages and informs our actions inside of them. Now, before we get too far into this, I need to point out that this passage speaks to an acute example where marriage is not working as it should. Peter is speaking to wives and later to husbands to answer the question what is a Christian supposed to do in a broken marriage? The ideal is not being met in these marriages because, at the most basic level, these spouses do not agree on who is ultimate. Who is most important? And where that tension occurs, Peter uses the ideal, the posture of the ideal to inform the response of the believing spouse. What is marriage? Ephesians 5 speaks to the ideal, the reason for marriage. At its foundational level, marriage is a striking, majestic, and beautiful picture of Christ and the church. That is the point of marriage. That is the meaning of marriage. God put into the very fabric of our closest human relationship a picture of what it looks like for God to relate to his people. Christ to relate to his church. Marriage exists to show that picture. In Ephesians, Paul speaks to believing wives and says, "...submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ." Be that picture of the church. Show us how we, the church, live and move and breathe in relationship to God. Love them and respect them and follow them. At its most perfect, the picture of submission is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he endures suffering, he first shares with his Father his concerns and his emotions. He shares that he doesn't want to do this. Is there some other way? And then in the garden, he tells the Father, I am with you. Nevertheless, I am with you. In a working picture of marriage, when a wife subjects herself, she is subjecting to someone who cares for her and loves her, someone who serves her. There is great comfort there. Ephesians continues the ideal by saying, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Show us how Christ loved his bride and gave his very body to love her and protect her and take care of her and sanctify her. Marriage is first and foremost a picture of that relationship and marriage, when it is working, is showing us The church and is showing us Jesus. And that is why, when it is broken, it is all the more difficult. So, Peter starts with the ideal and shows us that that defines a spouse's posture. That is how a Christian honors God in a marriage where their spouse does not. He starts likewise. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. In marriage, Peter focuses on and gives most attention to wives in broken marriages because they are most likely to experience suffering. Because it is most likely that the disparity in relationship will be to their detriment, not to their advantage. The context just before this section is of slaves experiencing suffering where again the relationship is not to their advantage. And Peter reminds them if we can do good in the midst of suffering this is a gracious thing. And Peter held up Christ as an example of suffering that we follow in, that wives you can follow in. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he says, likewise. In the same way, wives, as you experience suffering, even in the midst of your closest relationship, follow Christ and his example. Subject yourselves. Wives, continue to show your side of the picture, even when the whole picture is broken. Even when your husband is not showing his side of the picture even when he doesn't believe there is a picture. Peter is setting up here that just like you would set yourself up for a Christian witness to the rest of the world, that same honorable posture is in the home as well as a Christian witness for the sake of the Lord. He continues, that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So that even if some do not obey the word, this harkens back to chapter 2. Perhaps you remember Peter said, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He says that stone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter remind us. Reminded us. Everyone has to deal with Jesus. And if they hear the gospel. If they hear the good news. And reject it. They disobey the word. Some husbands hear the word. And don't want any part of it. Wives then and now come to glory in the gospel, to revel in the gospel, to find joy and rest in the gospel, and their husbands want nothing to do with it. There are husbands then and now that that they say, yeah, go do your church thing. I want nothing to do with that. And there are husbands that are less cordial. They get their back up, and their rejection is more vocal and less friendly. They are not ambivalent about your connection to the community of Christ. They don't want you to have any part of it. The tension is real and exceedingly difficult and every wife that sits in that situation says, what do I do? Peter encourages wives to keep up their side of the picture. Keep their side of exemplifying the gospel by relationship. Because those that disobey the word may be one without a word. Not because a wife had the perfect comeback to their rejection. Not because they convinced him into faith. Not because they keep up their pleading and got him to succumb. But because their conduct was so otherworldly that they were finally one to the gospel. Ladies, God can and does Use your conduct and your actions to proclaim good news to your husbands. Sisters, when your conduct is informed first by the God that you serve, the God that purchased you by his own body, the God who suffered for you to make you part of his people, God can take your conduct and put on full display his ability to take you, who was once outcast and now part of a people. Who once has not received mercy but has now received mercy. His ability to change you. He can take your living and moving and breathing in the holy identity and drive it into the heart of your husband. Your husband, he can be one. God is that big. God is that powerful. He can perform miracles in the midst of tension, that tension even. He can use your actions every day to proclaim that good news. Peter continues, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. On first glance, this seems to just be a way to describe the conduct of one subjecting themselves. But I want to point out that the word in the original language that we translate as respectful is Foboi, where we get the word for phobia or fear. This is fearful and pure conduct. And whom only do we fear? God. Chapter 2, verse 17, in this very letter says, Honor everyone, but fear God. This is a conduct that places God as preeminent and foremost. God as first. Wives, this is you over and over conducting yourselves in such a way that your life screams, God is paramount. God is to be glorified. God is wondrous. And I want most of all to be in connection with him. Your actions can say, I will act and move in my marriage in a way that shows that I am foremost concerned about my relationship with God. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I will love my neighbor, even my closest neighbor, my husband. And I will show that love by treating you, my husband, like the church treats Christ. Your actions are pure because they are defined by worship to Christ. You do what you do because you are connected to Jesus. You have a changed heart and a changed character and your actions will display that it is so. I can just see husbands observing, believing wives. They keep talking to their father because he listens. He desires to hear their prayers and they know that and they keep praying. Wives, you keep opening this book because the words of life are here and you need them. You keep connecting to the community of Christ because we are living stones being built up into a wonderful house. You keep respecting and loving someone who is not worthy. Your daily actions are done with a character that only God can provide. This is glorious and fearful and pure conduct and God can use that kind of conduct to win a husband. Peter continues. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What you put on says a lot. You know that in their culture, just as now we tend to think there is value in the, Physical presentation. That someone is beautiful if there is costly jewelry adorning their neck or their ears. If the clothing they purchase is a means of presenting oneself as put together or desirable or in the know. If a woman wears gold, then she is valuable and important. You know that lie. If she has the right hairstyle and the right brand of jeans or the right color for the year, then she is attractive and worth noting the right dress from the right store at the right time for the right season. Don't be distracted. Don't adorn yourself that way. Don't let your definition of beauty be that definition, but instead, let your beauty be magnified because of your character. Because of the thing that is very precious. In the Greek, very costly before the face of God. When the God who owns the universe says something is costly, it is costly indeed. Beauty is seen by the eye of God in the gentle and quiet spirit. The thing that cannot be fancied up with the right dress or the right makeup. It is you in your soul that is beautiful. And that is beauty that age or sickness cannot touch. That is beauty that will never blemish the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle and quiet has been given an unnecessarily narrow definition. Unfortunately and unhelpfully, it's often been described as simply being soft and sitting in a corner and keeping your mouth shut. That's not true. In reality, these two definers of character are something that the Bible asks of us all. This is the character upon which God's gaze is set. In Isaiah 66, it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build up for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite. Or gentle and quiet, humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. To be gentle is to not be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. There is a humility that has a proper view of God and thus a proper view of self. To be quiet is to be well-ordered in your character. To be without turmoil, think peace. These are characteristics that go hand in hand with the fearful conduct of verse 2. And this is the character that is imperishable beauty. This is the character that brings conduct, that proclaims goodness to an unbelieving husband. This is character that comes because you are with God and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the type of beauty that God can use to win a husband. Peter gives an example For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter points to the women of old who exemplified this kind of conduct. They kept up their side of the picture of marriage even when their husbands did not. They kept their hope in God even when their husbands gave them reason to doubt. Sarah is listed here as a marker for all the saintly women of old. There is often talk of the sons of Abraham as a way of saying, I am linked to the man of faith. But here Peter appeals to the desire to be daughters of Sarah, who had faith even when her husband was acting in a way that disobeyed the word who hoped in God even when her husband did not. If you've read if you've read Genesis, you know that Sarah had to deal with some difficult stuff. Just to mention a few, not once but twice she had to trust God in spite of her husband while they were traveling. Though God told Abraham he would make a nation out of him and give him a child as they wandered around homeless in the wilderness, Abraham was concerned that some powerful man that they would meet would be so attracted to his wife that that guy would kill him and have Sarah for his wife. So what was his thought? It it was not, if God said he would give me a kid, and I don't yet have a kid, I can't be killed because I have to be alive to have a kid. He, he didn't, so he, he could have said, I'll trust God then, right? He didn't do that. Instead, his genius idea was to have his wife say that she was his sister, and then he'd be okay. This is the definition of someone not trusting God. And Sarah, in these moments, kept her hope in God, and in fact, God rescued her from danger in both, cer- both circumstances. This happened twice. Sorry. They went to Egypt and she was taken and God attacked the house of Pharaoh to rescue her. They went to Negev and he did the same thing and she was taken by a guy named Abimelech and God showed up in a dream to Abimelech and said, just just so you know, you have someone else's wife. And Abimelech brought her back. What are you doing to me? And in the midst of this, Sarah kept her hope in God who kept taking care of her and walked with Abraham despite his stupid ideas. Genesis 18 has the explicit re- explicit reference of Sarah calling Abraham Lord. That is language used back then as a respectful way of talking. We don't we don't use the word Lord in that way anymore, but then they did. And it is in the midst of being reminded that though she was 90 and Abraham 100 that they would have a child. When given the opportunity to deride to, to and to mock the age of Abraham and his likely expired ability to have children, even when no one could hear her, even when she was all alone, she instead takes the path of submission and respect and holds up her side of the picture of marriage. To herself, in Genesis 18, she says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure She is tired and wavering, but God restores her hope in Him when the child does arrive. She could have derided, instead she held up her side of the picture. By holding up your side of the picture, you are children of Sarah, daughters of Sarah who put their hope in God. God who can do mighty things. The God who can give a child to a 90 year old woman. The God who can put on flesh himself and be God with us. The God who in fact softened your heart and changed it and made you part of his people. He can do that for your husband. Even if you are tired and it has been a long, long road. When you put your hope in God, you are a daughter of Sarah. God brought miracles to Sarah even after a long road. Your husband, he may be won by your conduct. Peter says, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The word frightening here is something more attached to intimidation. And I don't want to lighten the potential that a husband's rejection of Jesus, that Jesus their wife worships, could be more than ambivalence. In the original environment, you have a husband leading a household in the worship of other gods and then a wife says, I'm, I'm going to go follow Jesus. You can be sure that not all of those stories end with merely a rough argument. If an unbelieving one would beat a slave, the same one would have little qualm hurting a wife that gave the seeming disrespect of not following the gods the husband had choo- chose to worship. The potential for suffering is real. That is why it comes on the heels of the talk of slaves and of beatings and the example of Christ suffering for you and the possibility that you may walk in His steps because you follow Him. A conflicted marriage like this is like holding on to a rope. Your, sp- your spouse may take the opportunity to climb up and be saved. Seeing your conduct and the God you worship, your responsibility is not to save them. You can't pull them up. You can't change their heart. Only God can do that. Your opportunity is to model for them what Christian hope in the midst of suffering looks like. That may be the way God shows them the truth. 1 Corinthians 7 says this about conflicted marriages. Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul is saying, if you can stay with them, if you can stay in that marriage, great. If they consent to be with you, then great. If you have the opportunity to stay, then great. Who knows what can happen? God can do great things through your suffering. Hold out the rope as long as you can. If your sharing in the sufferings of Christ can continue to bring good. There may be times, however, when that rope becomes a weapon rather than a lifeline and you have to let go of the rope. The possibility of intimidation and danger is real and this passage speaks to that. Later in 1 Peter, it talks about elders who are called to shepherd, to take care of the flock, to take care of those who are hurting. There are shepherds because the flock needs protection. This passage is not asking you to sit quietly and be abused. If you are scared or feel in danger, if there is a situation, if that is your situation, please talk to a pastor, talk to an elder. You don't have to walk alone. Peter then talks to husbands. So ladies, you can stay, but I'm going to talk to husbands now. Peter says, Likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Likewise, there can be suffering for husbands as well when they live with wives who do not share an identity with Christ, who are not with the people of God. But you and I both know that suffering is completely different. Firstly, I want to note that Peter does not make any mention of make sure your wife submits to you. That is not your side of the picture. And you can see that potential, right? I'm following Jesus. You are going to come to church with me. You are coming to life group with me. You are following this way. That posture is inappropriate. A coerced person is not a changed person. That is not an appropriate posture. You are to live with your wives in an understanding way, in a way that expresses that you have knowledge, knowledge and wisdom associated with knowing the God of redemption and salvation, the God who loves a quiet and gentle spirit. Exude grace to your wife when she does not believe the word. You are a representative of Christ in the way you walk and the way you act. Love and serve your wife understanding that she may not know the God of the universe like you do, so it would be very difficult to live with you. If the good news is not her good news, you need to know you're going to need to continue to explain it to her over and over and over again. Why do you speak that way? Why do you act that way? Why do you do those things? In an understanding way, I sat in a room just this week with a bunch of men trying to figure out how do I honor my wife? When she's not on the same page with me, what do I do? How do I love her? How do I show her respect and honor and love and service? What do I do? They were brainstorming, trying to figure it out. Lean toward that ideal picture, even if she does not show her side of the picture. Love as Christ loved, even if she does not act like the church. Well, how far do I go? What is the bar? The bar. Christ gave himself up for the church. That's the bar. Christ bled for the church. That's the bar. That's how far you go, husbands. If she still consents to be with you, you can continue to love her like Christ loved the church. Peter says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, your posture towards your wife is one of honor, one of showing them and displaying them as valuable and precious. Do not take the cues from culture that describes wives as the old ball and chain or the old lady. That garbage has no place in your mouth. You are an exile in this place, and it does not give you your lines. The world does not teach you how to honor your wives. What names do you use for your wife? Does she hear them as honorable? Does she hear herself as lovely in your eyes? Let her see that she is precious. Like Christ shows the church that she is precious especially to those wives that do not know Jesus. You are the picture of Jesus to them. And Jesus showed incredible honor to his bride, the church. And you whose brides do know Jesus, you are still a picture of Jesus to them. Proclaim that gospel well in your actions and your language toward her. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel weaker vessel is simply a way to describe that there are physical differences between men and women. This is by no means a way to describe a lesser capacity morally or emotionally or intellectually or spiritually. This is simply to communicate that the body of a woman is physically weaker than the body of a man. By and large, men are stronger. They have muscle and bone structure that is notably different than a woman. Men with strength have the ability to use their bodies as a means of protection. They can use their body to productive, strong ends. But with the echoes of verse 6, we can see that that distinction can also be used used as a means of intimidation. A man can scare with his body. Bring fear with his body. Raise a hand and cause a flinch. Suggest danger or inflict hurt with his body. Husbands, never use your body against your wife. Never give her reason to fear you. Never dishonor her. That is not how you treat the daughters of God. Treat her as a co-heir of the grace of life. Whether she yet believes the truth or not, that is your mode of operation. That is your standard. That is your posture. One of grace and kindness. That is your hope and that is your prayer. And that is how you will posture yourself every day. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. Lest you forget who the giver of grace is. The God who hears your prayers is the God who formed the entirety of the cosmos. The God who can crush death itself is the one who listens to your prayers. And to dishonor your brides is to put yourself in a place where your prayers are hindered. Do you want God to stop his ears for you? if you posture to dishonor your bride using your words to beat her down or your strength to scare instead of protect her, beware. The God of the universe is no longer postured to listen to you and help you. The consequences are grave. When you who would picture Christ dishonor or scare your bride, how dare you? God loves his bride. God loves his daughters. Do not be surprised if God takes the posture you take toward your wife. There should be fear in your bones, men. Do not take the example of cowardly, worldly, brutish men who use women for their own ends. You are taking care of someone as an heir of the grace of life. Walk in a manner that speaks so. With every action, you can proclaim the grace of life. With every word, you can accentuate the grace of life. With every conversation, you can point to grace. With every service, you point to a serving God. You have been included in a great story of good news. Let every moment with your wife point to that story. Sit in your identity as a purchased one and pray to God that He gives you the grace to love and serve this heir of grace and that He include her quickly. Everyone, you can come back. On either side of this broken picture are people with broken hearts longing for their spouses to love Jesus alongside of them. Even when we both love Jesus, that ideal is not always seen. These practices still need to be walked in marriage. When a husband acts like he is not believing the gospel, here is a way to walk in hope that he obeys the word. When a wife does not walk in a way that looks like Jesus is paramount, honor and love and protect her in a way that matches your prayers for her. The prayers you can be confident are heard because your posture is appropriate. And all of this is hard. All of this is hard because the world is hard. It is hard because people are rejecting Jesus. We know that. But we put our confidence and hope and our need for help in the God who is powerful, who came and suffered for us. The God who bore the most injustice to buy us back. Peter reminds us of Jesus in chapter 2. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This morning, we have the fitting opportunity to receive communion together as those with Christ, as those who are a people bought by the wounds of Jesus. Once we were straying, but Jesus suffered so we may return to him. We will take communion together as a means of remembering this truth. If you love the word of Christ, if you love Jesus and know you are connected to him, this is a time for us to together remember what Christ did for us. So during the next song, you can make your way down the middle to the front or the back and go back to your seats on the outside. And after the song, we will take these together. And if you do not know connection with Jesus, this would be a great time to sit and ponder what we are saying. Jesus has extended the grace of life. Do you want that? Let's pray. Lord, this is heavy. The tension in a marriage can be so great when, when a spouse is not looking to Jesus. Lord, please comfort any wife that resonates with this experience. Lord, win their husbands. Gain their husbands. Give them endurance as they walk in a broken picture. Strengthen them to exemplify their side of the picture. Lord, encourage any husband who walks this road, let his default be grace even in frustration. Honor and understanding even when they just long for their wife to walk with them toward Jesus. Holy Spirit for each of us, husband or wife, who sit in the picture of marriage, use us to point to Jesus. Use us to point to the church. Make beautiful pictures out of us so that the world may know how you love the church. And whenever a spouse begins to disobey the word, give us the posture of First Peter and sanctify them. Lord, even as we take these elements this morning, help us see and understand deep in our bones that you suffered for us. That is an exceedingly great gift. Amen.